his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish, the psalmist said. Luke writes, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Time could easily be measured in days, as our historian faithfully recorded, from when Festus entertained the proposals of the Jewish leaders and Paul appealed to Caesar before Agrippa and his sister came to Caesarea to greet the new governor. But it was centuries after our psalmist wrote, Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish, which is remarkable considering the next statement Luke makes about this pair. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Agrippa's title as king was Herod Agrippa. Yes, another descendant of Herod the Great. In fact, son to Herod's grandson, Agrippa the one who accepted praise as a god and was struck dead for it. But this Herod is shown in a good light. He's the only Herod who is. Well, in the Bible, that is. Which may be why Luke leaves out the name Herod with all its negative connotations. A particularly interesting aspect of the second Agrippa's behavior is his care for his sister. Remember, that to say the Herod family was dysfunctional is a kindness? They were really, really sad. Bernice was married to a Marcus Julius Alexander, a son of Tiberius, somewhere around the age of 13. He died in just a year or two, and she then married her uncle Herod, (laughs) by whom she had two sons. Told you they were sick. He lasts only four years before he dies, and she moves in with her brother. Well, the family being what it is, many rumors wafted around about their relationship. In fact, her next marriage, in just a few years, some say was engineered for the express purpose of quelling these nasty rumors for her. For him, it was the money. The Herods were fabulously wealthy, and he got a bunch of it. If this type of behavior sounds familiar, you may be thinking of Drusilla, their sister, the one who married at 13, then left her husband a few years later for the more powerful and upcoming Felix, the very man who was governor before Festus. <laughs> well, if quelling rumors was the purpose of Bernice's marriage, it wasn't pulled off very well. She left him in just a few years, and guess who she moved back in with? <laughs> The persistent popular rumors were further fueled by a couple of interesting issues. Bernice was said to have at least equal power in ruling with her brother Agrippa. And Agrippa never married any time in his long life. But it's somewhere around five to seven years after Bernice left her third husband and moved back in with her brother that they visit Festus. I went into all this history so that you can get a feel for what the people that were there felt. They watched the ostentatious display of pomp that Agrippa and Bernice put on as they entered, but they knew all the dirt on them. (laughs) What was running through their minds as the royal pair made their way to their seats? What was Paul thinking after Festus' address 
when the royal brother spoke to him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Paul knows that Agrippa has shown significant interest in the Jewish people even to the point of learning their customs and those things that are controversial among them. Think Jesus and his followers. So he ignores the side issues and compliments Agrippa for that which he has done right. No one is entirely good in this world, but neither is anyone 100% bad. There is always something that they are doing for which we can compliment them. And don't miss that Paul begs him to listen to me patiently. Sure, this is proper legal rhetoric for this setting. But Paul could also have phrased it in a way that made him, Paul, look better. He didn't. Because his main concern is Agrippa. Important to our understanding is the relationship Agrippa and his sisters had with the Jews. You will remember that Drusilla was earlier called Jewish by Luke. They were, in fact, only a small part Jewish. Most of their ancestry was Idumean, uh, the offspring of Isaac's brother Esau, earlier called Edomites. But their dad had, probably for political reasons, strongly embraced the Jewish faith. The kids seemed to have become so closely tied to the Jews that they were identified as such and seemed to feel that they were Jewish. Knowing all this... Try to imagine what's going on through Agrippa's mind as Paul went on. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Agrippa is emotionally tied to the Jewish nation. Paul says he had lived at the highest level of Jewish fervency. You see how he's connecting with Agrippa? And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. The hope God made to the Jews. Well, what hope is that? Well, it's the hope the Pharisees held, the resurrection. And not just the Pharisees, nearly all Jews fervently hoped for and believed that one day they would attain resurrection to eternal life. You remember how the psalmist said it? But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. If all believing Jews, whom Agrippa sees as his people, held to this truth, then what's the problem? (laughs) No wonder Paul said in amazement, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why, if they really believed, would they ever accuse Paul? But he was accused by Jews who should instead have celebrated the advent of their hope of resurrection. They should have celebrated with the psalmist, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Instead, they fought against Paul and God. Anyone who knows God should not be at all surprised by the resurrection of Jesus. 
Which is why Paul asked them all, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I think he gave them a few moments to think about this before he went back and tied himself to the very Jews who were accusing him. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Back in the heyday of evangelists in the 60s and 70s, the 1960s and 70s, there used to be a joke that you couldn't really be a good evangelist unless you had been a drug addict or a felon. <laughs> and there is something powerful in showing a changed life. If your past is one out of which you were wonderfully saved by Jesus, feel free to tell people about it. You were that, but you are now a child of God's. Back in those bad old days, Paul called the believers in Jesus heretics. Now he calls them saints. When they put Stephen to death, he cheered them on. We spoke of Paul's raging fury in persecuting the saints some months ago. So now let's join him as he describes that glorious day when Jesus forever changed him. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Some of the very chief priests, who are now accusing Paul, had commissioned him to persecute the saints in Damascus. As we've already discussed Paul's conversion, I'd like to focus on what Agrippa was thinking. Remember that, unlike Festus, we're sure that Agrippa knows the claims of Jesus' resurrection. His father is the one who ordered the death of many saints, including James, and also had Peter imprisoned. And our Agrippa has studied the subject, as we'll soon see. But just in case Paul makes the truth very clear, Jesus is alive, Jesus is Lord, and to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And don't forget that Paul, one of those who constitute the church, is being persecuted here. I have this feeling that at this point Agrippa is leaning forward in his chair. His brow is probably furrowed. He's completely forgotten all those around him. Because if what Paul says is true, that all Agrippa has gone to some great lengths to embrace, he must now leave behind if he is to worship the true God. Paul goes on with Jesus' response to his question, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
from the great light, Paul is told to instruct the Gentiles to turn to the light. It's curious that Paul, by the way, does not mention his blindness or healing or anything at all about Ananias. In particular, that Ananias told him he was to witness to kings. Why not include that? Wouldn't that really wow Agrippa? Well, no, actually, I don't think so. I think Agrippa would have thought, yeah, right, great story. Did you just make that up in the spot here? (laughs) So we have to be careful what we tell people. Some of the claims of Christianity are fantastic. They're true. But they may be more than a person who does not believe can accept. Besides, remember what the psalmist said, high and low, rich and poor. Paul doesn't want him thinking about his position or wealth or anything except his individual soul. And note those wonderful parables. Turn from darkness to light, which means to turn from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins, which results in having a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. You can be sure that Agrippa felt the force of Jesus' statement to Paul deep in his heart. And with such an incredible call directly from the Lord Jesus, what, Agrippa must be thinking, would Paul do? Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. O King Agrippa, back when Paul was ready to introduce the heavenly vision, he said, O King Now, at this most important juncture, he says, O King Agrippa. Paul was deeply focused on bringing the message to Agrippa. He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about his trial. He wasn't thinking about what he had to do to save his skin. He was thinking about the one that he wanted to introduce to Christ. And his name naturally flowed from Paul's lips. If we truly care about the ones to whom we are witnessing... We won't think of ourselves or what we have to do. We'll be thinking of their eternal destiny. Let's let their names spill out of our souls as we present Jesus to them. They'll feel the depth of our concern. Okay, the practical moment. Do you want to have a genuine concern for people? Do you want to never forget their name again? Here is a guaranteed way to do that. Guaranteed way to do it. Pray for their salvation every day. Say their name out loud to Jesus. Every day. That's it. It's amazing and it works. You'll never forget their name again if you pray for them every day out loud to God. Okay. End of practical moment. I love that Paul is doing at this very moment, exactly what Jesus told him to do, witnessing to his own people, the Jews, and to Gentiles, telling them to repent and to live like they have repented. That's the hard part. And Agrippa knows this. Remember, Bernice and all his dirty laundry is hanging out for all to see. But of course, as Paul has made clear to Agrippa, those Jews don't really want what God wants. So they seize Paul and try to kill him. 
but to no avail. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both too small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. From whom does his help come? Didn't Paul just go on record saying that Jesus promised to deliver him from both Jews and Gentiles? If Agrippa was paying attention, and I think he was, he would have caught it. Paul is saying that Jesus is God. Wow. Small and great. Paul wasn't likely thinking of the psalm that we read. It's just a biblical principle that every person must individually respond to the witness of Christ, whether they are small or great. And Paul appeals to the very thing that the Jews and, no doubt, Agrippa held so dear, the prophets and Moses, the scriptures. The scriptures show that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, must suffer. They point to his rising from the dead. They make it clear that the light illuminating truth that Jesus would bring would be for more than just the Jews. It would also be for the Gentiles. For what did the crowd want to kill Paul? Why did they shout and carry on to such a degree that the tribune was going to examine him by flogging? Why did more than 40 men vow to kill Paul? What was the content of the accusation of the Jews now? They felt that only the Jews should have the glory of being God's people. Letting Gentiles in, without making them first become Jews, would dilute the glory they felt rightfully theirs. Agrippa had taken the plunge into Judaism. Paul is saying, you didn't need to do that. Agrippa would be contemplating these truths, and I think Paul paused to give him some time for consideration. Ah, but Satan. Satan wanted to jar him out of his contemplation, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I'm sure Festus didn't realize that he was prompted by Satan to distract the thoughts of Agrippa. And it can certainly be frustrating when the force of our argument is diminished by ridiculous statements like this. For our part, we just have to remember that God is in charge. If he didn't want the interruption, then it wouldn't have happened. Just keep on going and let God take care of the rest. That's what Paul does. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Since we talked about the true, rational, and well-documented nature of these truths last week, let's look at how Paul pressed forward with Agrippa. He addresses Festus but deftly switches back to conversation with the one to whom he has been speaking all along. He hasn't given up on Agrippa. And because he has such a deep concern for him, it is quite natural for him to turn back to him. You remember that Paul earlier appealed to the prophets and Moses. He knows Agrippa has studied the prophets carefully. 
he does believe that there is something to their writings. Most everyone has some belief in the supernatural, and maybe nothing more than superstition, but it might be formed a little further. Perhaps they believe that there is a hereafter. They may believe in angels. Uh, maybe they, they actually believe there is one creator God, but have not yet accepted Jesus as one person of the triune Godhead. Whatever it is, I think we need to find that out and then encourage them in it. Will it work? Uh, maybe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In Agrippa's case, we just don't know. Certainly he makes no public proclamation and acceptance of the faith. But Agrippa does display his knowledge of the way. How did he know the word Christian? Because he had studied the claims of Christianity well enough that he, without thinking, applies the name those outside the faith had given to it. The man knows the truth, but he won't step into the faith. Paul seems to sense that he's done all he can do, and Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He doesn't want people arrested, but he does want all to believe, to know their sins are forgiven, to know they have eternal life. Without question, he gives them every chance. But it appears none of them took this opportunity to ensure their eternal happiness. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They fall back on the temporal. Is Paul guilty or not? Should we send him to Caesar or offer to let him go? Agrippa, not knowing he is carrying out God's will, gives Festus his judgment. Send him to Caesar. They said Paul could have been set free. He could have been set free. They missed Paul's main point. He is free. Free of sin. Free of eternal death. Sheol. Paul's main point, he is free. Free of sin, free of eternal death of Sheol. And Agrippa and all the others there can be free too. We've been trying to see things through Agrippa's eyes. But how does God see it? To Festus and Agrippa, Bernice and all that crowd there, there was only one prisoner in the room. To God... There was only one man there free. We've got to learn to see with eternal eyes. Nero soon comes to power in Rome, the man who killed his own mother and wife and many, many others, <laughs> hated all who would claim a sovereign God. He thought he was the sovereign God. And his sins were many, and he did not like the idea of being responsible for them. Jewish-Roman relations thus became more and more strained as time wore on when Nero's new procurator of Judea raided the temple treasuries. Riots broke out. The Roman response? Crucify all the rioters they could find. Here is where we meet with a great curiosity. Bernice 
goes to Jerusalem when any sane person would flee the city and she petitions this new procurator to spare these Jews. Not only did he not comply with her request, but does not protect her and she is nearly killed in all the unrest. She attempted to go over his head to the Syrian legate, but is also rejected there. Knowing that further Jewish revolts will result in terrible retribution from Rome, Agrippa called the Jewish people together and, with his sister at his side, made a tearful appeal for peace. These unbelieving Jews rewarded them by burning down their palaces. Nero dispatched an entire legion of Roman soldiers to quell the violence. Incredibly, the Jews defeated the Romans and forced them to retreat. In a strange twist of history, Nero then appointed Vespasian to put down the rebellion. In 67, just seven years after Paul's defense before Agrippa, both the 5th and the 10th Roman legions joined the other soldiers in the fight. Two years later, Vespasian's son Titus landed at Ptolemy with the entire 15th legion. For the Jews... It meant that 60,000 trained and battle-hardened Roman soldiers would now crush them in defeat. For Bernice, it meant something else. She, apparently, although 15 years his senior, fell deeply in love with Titus, whatever that meant to her. While a million Jews were being exterminated and a hundred thousand being hauled off as slaves, she and Titus carried on a torrid affair. And she did another thing. This was the year when Rome had four emperors. Nero killed himself early in the year, and in rapid succession, three others followed him. The last, and one who died of natural causes ten years later, was none other than Titus' father Vespasian. Bernice is said to have poured out all her influence and money to ensure Vespasian's ascendancy. Four years later, when she finally joined Titus in Rome, they carried on their affair in flagrant public fashion. In fact, she acted as his wife in many public settings. Whether she truly loved Titus, we can't tell. Undoubtedly, she was looking for the glory afforded an emperor's son's wife. But when the native Romans pressured Titus about this Jewish queen... He caved in and sent her from Rome. When he became emperor a few years later, she went to Rome thinking that he would now take her as his wife. She was mistaken. He sent her away once again. Titus died suddenly only two years later. Bernice is never heard from again. She got near to the glory she so wanted, but never achieved it. And Agrippa because he also helped to bring Vespasian to the throne, he was awarded with a secure and valuable position, which he held until his death in 92. As we said, he never married, he never had children, so with him died his glory, the last of the glory of the Herods, and the last of the glory of the Edomites. He is the last known descendant of Esau. This too, the prophets had foretold. There's no record of Herod Agrippa ever embracing Jesus Christ as his Lord. Certainly no thought of Bernice heeding Paul's teaching. (laughs) The glory they thought to achieve 
as the psalmist said, they could not carry to the grave. They should have listened to the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? They were brought near the glory of Jesus, but they will never enjoy it themselves. They should have done what Paul was telling everyone to do. Turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Then receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. What about Paul? What about us? It's sad to see people like Agrippa and Bernice, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. But for those who turn from darkness to light, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Have you denied yourself and sacrificed all for Jesus? Have you lost your life for Christ and the good news? What point is there in gaining the whole world if you are without understanding a man in his pomp like the beasts that perish? Would you have your soul ransomed from the power of Sheol? He will receive you into his arms to a perfect eternal life in a perfect new creation if you give all for him. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us, maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least, with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.